Well, it's a great pleasure to introduce one of my heroes, one of the world's heroes, Paul Farmer. I had heard of Paul Farmer when I was working at the National Institutes of Health, but I actually first got to know about him in some detail, actually, during an academy meeting in San Antonio. When sitting on a barge going down a canal, I sat next to Tracy Kidder, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. He had written The Soul of a New Machine. And he told me that he had met a truly remarkable individual and had spent the last few years traveling with that individual and was going to write a book about him. Tracy Kidder wrote a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains about Paul Farmer and his efforts to bring medical care to those stricken with poverty then in Haiti and after that around the world. When Mountains Beyond Mountains came out, I read that book, probably the most inspiring book that I have ever read in my entire life, and I recommend it to, to all of you. Mountains Beyond Mountains is a remarkable story of a young man from very humble uh, beginnings who decided, as the title of the book says, to cure the world. And if you read that book, you'll see how just one single individual can have such remarkable impact around our globe. Paul Farmer is a physician who has become a symbol of hope for people throughout the world who live in poverty and yearn for the most basic medical care and the most fundamental of human rights. Paul Farmer has shown that a very small band of physicians working closely with community health workers can change medical care for millions of individuals, and he has, in fact, done that. Paul started all of this as a medical student at Harvard. He volunteered to work in the central plateau of Haiti, one of the poorest parts of Haiti, and made many trips to Haiti to try to bring medical care to that part of the country during his medical school years, something that turned into a worldwide effort. In 1987, just at the age of 29, Paul founded Partners in Health, a pioneering organization that now has outposts bringing medical care not only to Haiti, but to Rwanda, Russia, Lesotho, Malawi, Peru, and other stricken areas of the world as well. Now, Paul has a remarkably clear vision of what needs to be done, but he's never confused a clear vision with a short distance. He realizes that the realization of the vision to bring medical care to the, to the poor is a long process, and he's organized partners in health around the world, taking advantage not only of medical expertise in the developed world, but with a large emphasis on community care as well. His vision is that the right to health is a right that everyone deserves, and that poverty is the greatest stimulus to illness 
and one cannot correct one problem without the other. Poverty and illness must be challenged together. His remarkable organization brings the best of modern medicine, but intensely involved with the use of community health workers, a model that has served not only around the world, but in efforts at Boston, uh, undeserved communities as well. At the same time, Paul Farmer is a scholar. He has a PhD in anthropology. He's written books that tell you part of the passion that he has, books that have had a profound impact uh, on bringing health care to the undeserved. One of his books, Pathologies of Power, Health and Human Rights in the New War on the Poor, Infections and Inequalities, The Modern Plagues, and other books as well. He's a professor at Harvard in anthropology, and he's chairman of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine. Now, Ralph Waldo Emerson once described success, and I can't think of anyone who meets this definition of success greater than Paul Farmer. Ralph Waldo Emerson, in one of his famous uh, essays, said that success is the following. To win the respect of intelligent people, to find the best in others, to leave the world a better place, whether by a healthy child or a redeemed social condition. To know that even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. That is to have succeeded. Paul Farmer has succeeded many millions of times over. Paul, it's a great pleasure to introduce you to this group. Thank you very much, Steve. Um, well, I'll be brief. I should be um, finished in about an hour, an hour and a half, if that's OK with Wayne and Catherine. More? Yeah. Don't worry, Sam Donaldson. Um, he's brief. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about our work. It's not conventional dinner fare. I, have, I, think I've, I hope I've done uh, a good job. Where's Catherine? I've been uh, going to NYU rather religiously to Harvard, where I was supposed to be anyway. So I've been doing this is, I've spoken with a number of the fellows who are here today, but I just wanted to go back and think a little bit about um, the problems that we might, uh, that we're facing when we think about global health and, and disparities. And when I say global, um, I don't mean, say, in Rwanda, where I've been living and working recently, or Haiti. I, I, I mean globe, the globe, and South Africa's on the globe, Cape Town's on the globe, and Boston's on the globe, and St. Louis is on the globe, and on it goes. It, it's, a, it's a term that is, I think, quite different from what was intended by international health, which is the term, when I was uh, in training in the 80s, you know, uh, 25 years ago, that was the term that was used, uh, international health, as if the problems were far away and not near. This notion of proximity that Steve brought up is, is very you know, in, important to me. How do we judge proximity and distance? And in the global era, which has been going on, I think, since the late 15th century, you know, it's very difficult to say that things are far away and not close to us. And I'm going to talk a little bit um, about the, the work that we've done. 
I actually can look there. Don't worry, this is, doctors always give these PowerPoint presentations. Also military people, I notice. The military and the physicians. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, but I'm, I'm, it's going to be a little bit more colorful than this. I just want to, I was asked to talk a little bit about my own experience. I went to Haiti actually not in 1985, but in 1983. I had a good talk with um, Kristen Reardon about this today. Um, and I was 23 years old at the time, in between college and medical school, and I went to a place, and I feel very grateful now looking back, I went to, of all places, a squatter settlement. And the squatter settlement was formed when that hydroelectric dam was built. It was built by a small concern, I don't know the name of it, I think it was absorbed by um, Halliburton. Um, I was going to make the Americans laugh, but it didn't work. <laughs> Um, and th so this was, when it was built, the, the largest buttress dam in the Western Hemisphere. And eight kilometers away from this dam, a marvel of modern technology, was uh, a squatter settlement where people who had been flooded out were living. And so I, I had this look at technology, which did, did not make me a Luddite at all. And obviously any physician using the tools of modern medicine relies on science and technology. It did not make me a Luddite. But it did give pause to claims that I heard all the time back at Harvard about what, a, what was appropriate technology. So I sort of had a very Haitian take on this from the beginning. And it's been very helpful to me over the last 25 years in hearing claims that certain things can and cannot be done. For example, in the mountains of Lesotho, you can't treat AIDS. Or in the slums of Lima, you can't treat drug-resistant tuberculosis. Or in the prisons of Russia and on it goes. And this is really my debt to Haiti. I like to, to especially for the fellows and the, um, who are here today, just like to say that you know, that experience at 23 um, was really helped me to understand so many problems later on. So that's the way it began for me. Um, I just show this um, image, although I, I should have found, actually, I'd like to also thank my colleague, Alice Yang, who's one of the fellows. Where are you, Alice? There you are. Um, she's, of course, seen all these images before. But if you were a better research assistant some years ago before you went to Harvard, you would have found a picture from 1983. <laughs> she's moved on. I'm just kidding. She was the best ever. Hence, now she's a fellow. 1983 is a dusty settlement on top of a hill. And people did not have, they didn't have houses. They were in shacks, they didn't have water, they didn't, and you know, there's an irony there, of course, this was a hydroelectric dam, and they had neither water nor electricity. That would not uh, happen for uh, two decades. So that was just the beginning for me as I began a trajectory, first between Harvard and Haiti, that, went, that still goes on, and, uh, and, and later would bring me to some of the other places I'm going to talk today about Rwanda, um, although I've worked elsewhere in Africa as well. Now, as was mentioned by Steve, the determinants of poverty and disease, and this bores my medical students to death, by the way, when I start talking about the determinants of disease, the social roots of disease. That was the name of a very under-attended class I taught at Harvard, the social roots of disease. But it's not always that interesting, but it cannot be denied that it really, there really are these large-scale social forces poverty chief among them, that determine the distribution and outcome of disease. And that's not a very radical hypothesis. And working in Haiti is the place where you have to lear learn it. That, by the way, is the, in the rainy season, um, is the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. In the dry season, it looks even more dun-colored on the Haiti side. And of course, Haiti, as you know, has been prey to many coups and a lot of violence. 
And that's what's made it difficult to work as a physician there, but it's also pushed forward a model of care that we later brought back to Boston and elsewhere as well, I'll, and I'll describe that. That said, after 25 years, it was possible to build a modern hospital in a squatter settlement in Haiti. It was possible to build schools and to bring water and, um, to, and finally went electricity. By the way, we had electronic medical records in Haiti before we did in the United States, so I'd like to brag about that. You can leapfrog certain problems with the technologies that we have available. And this is um, how it looks institutionally. And for individuals, and here's where these are not your typical after-dinner remarks, but here's where I just like to speak as a physician. This is what it looks like when you're taking care of people. And some of you have seen this image before. I used, used it at NYU, for example. Um, and uh, this is a, a, a patient, a young man, um, who's 26 years old, who comes in. Of course, that's his mother bringing him out to a hospital in central Haiti that we had just uh, reopened, had been closed, really non-functioning for some years, and he has, of course, AIDS and tuberculosis. This is something I've seen now all over the world in our work, and he'd basically given up. He'd say, and his mother, you know, I find that mothers are very reluctant to give up on their children, which is a good thing. Um, she's, the neighbors carried him in on a stretcher, and I was uh, about an hour and a half away from here in the hospital where I, there, where I had been working, and I got an email from someone who was then a medical student of mine, who's now a colleague uh, at Harvard, but he was a, a medical student, and he wrote and said, Paul, would you come and see this patient? Um, and he, as one does in medicine, and, and Steve and Ben and others know this story, you say, this is a 26-year-old man, blah, 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 put in the details. And I unwisely wrote back and said, sure, I'd be glad to see him. That's called a consult, by the way. But why, don't, why do you need me to see him? I mean, you guys know how to manage uh, HIV and TB together. Now, what I wanted my student to say was, because, Paul, you are the world's greatest infectious disease doctor. <laughs> but being from Harvard, he said, uh, because he's depressed and needs cheering up. And uh, you know, I wrote back, well, I'm, you know, I'm an infectious disease doctor, not a social worker. But of course, I went to see the patient. And sure enough, he was, didn't want to take the medicines that, that could bring him back. And uh, so part of it really was about cheering up. And what I said to him, as I say to now hundreds and thousands of patients, is you know, we do have the medicines to bring you back. Um, but you, you know, you're going to have a community health worker. And that's the, that's the model that we use as community health workers. That Steve underlined this with reason. He would be assigned a community health worker. He would get the medicines. And it would not be his responsibility to buy the medicines. It would be his responsibility to take the medicines and get better. And of course, you know, I said that with some confidence because it has gone on again and again. You know, these, these drugs don't work any differently uh, in Haitians than they do in Americans. So this is the fellow before, and this is the fellow six months later. And there is the very complex model of care. I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it's innovative and entrepreneurial, Wayne. The patient, the community health worker, some pills and some water. That's it. Now, why this would be difficult to disseminate is, is something you know, we could talk about. There'll be some time for Q&A. But that's it. That's the model, is it's a public good for the patient to have this diagnosis and treatment. Now, of course, the patient can go back to work. In fact, this patient turned out to be something of a smart aleck. But when someone's sort of almost well, moribund, dying, that you can't tell what their real personality was. And I later found out he has a very mischievous sense of humor. And of, of course, I asked him, can I use your 
these pictures in public speaking. And he said, sure, it's not like I ever get invited to these fancy talks you give. But I had my revenge on him for that. He later went to a conference in Canada. And that's him in Canada at this meeting with a colleague from Rwanda. And, uh, and so he now is working with us on um, you know, and doing some of the work that I might be doing here, you know, giving a talk about why it's important to link prevention and care, et cetera. It's a long list of issues. And, uh, but he's one of thousands of patients. Now he had, as I mentioned, had two diseases that are really troubling in the world today and in this part of the world as well. But there are many others. I mean, who is going to bat for poor people with malignancies? Who's going to bat for poor people who have, you know, uh, brain tumors? Uh, these complex life-threatening diseases are uh, sitting heavily uh, wherever there is poverty. And, and that is true um, in the United States where there are great health disparities, as you know, and it's true here as well. And this is a big challenge, I think, as we look forward. And to put it in general terms around uh, to, to a challenge to young people here who are involved in entrepreneurial activities, that's one of the areas where we need leadership and, and social entrepreneurial ideas is how can we deliver the fruits of modern medicine uh, to people who need it most. And that's really become the, what's the driving force behind the work of Partners in Health.